For our second message today, we have a sermon by Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled The Power of Words. Mr. Whiteley. Thank you, Reggie. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here on another beautiful Sabbath day. I don't know if I have enough room up here today. So, Reggie mentioned the title of my message today is The Power of Words. And so, we'll get uh, into kind of what I'm talking about today in just a few minutes. But I wanted to kind of start off by talking, setting up this message today, uh, just about how God has revealed Himself to humanity. We know that. You know, as we live on this earth and as we read the Scriptures, we know that God has revealed Himself to humanity in really primarily two specific ways. First, God has revealed Himself through His creation, what is known as natural revelation, you know, from the greater universe that we live in to the earth itself and all the species that roam this earth with the intricate complexities of life and how it intertwines within this universe as a perfect and natural habitat for all the living species, from humans to animals to plant life. The second way, though, and the more common way that we think of when we think about how God has revealed himself specifically to human beings is through what many refer to as special revelation. And in this way, God has taken upon himself to enter into space and time within our earthly and physical domain and to reveal and to communicate His will, His character, His purpose. And we see this special revelation throughout the Word of God that we've been given. We see it, of course, in a burning bush. We see it in visions. We see it in dreams. We see it through prophets. Where God spoke through prophets, directly to prophets, and those prophets would communicate the will of God. And of course, thankfully, those events in history were recorded for us and put in this inspired word of God that we call the Bible. Starting in the New Testament, though, things changed a little bit. We see that there was a new way that God came to reveal himself. Let's go to John, the first chapter, and we're going to just read a few verses that we've all read many times before, but I want to go back as I begin this message because there's a point to why I'm mentioning these things. We've all read John, the first chapter, probably in its entirety, many, many times, but in John's gospel, very unique compared to the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John begins by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Some very, very popular words that we've heard many times. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now obviously, this phrase, in the beginning, as John wrote it, he specifically borrows from another very popular portion of Scripture. The very first words of what we call the Bible. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But when we go down to verse 14 of John's Gospel, 
we read, as we just read about this Word that was in the beginning and became flesh, we read in verse 14, And that Word, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And one of the interesting points about this verse, and there's been many people who've talked about this before, is the use of the words dwelt and glory. Dwelt in glory. And it means, in the Greek, that word dwelt means to pitch a tent. Specifically, to dwell temporarily. And some translations even translate this, this phrase as, He tabernacled among us. And this phrase, dwelt, tabernacled, pitched his tent, coupled with the words glory, is directly related to, to Exodus, the 33rd chapter, that we read, where we see Moses go to the tent of meeting. Let's go there real quick, verse 7 through 11. And the readers of John would have no doubt would have identified exactly what John was getting to when he said that, and he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us and used the word glory with it. In verse 7 of Exodus, the 33rd chapter, we read, Moses took his tent, and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door, and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man and his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face. God revealed himself to a human being face to face in a conversation. Continue on, as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. So it was here that God revealed his glory face to face in a conversation with Moses while the congregation stood afar off, watching and beholding God's glory fill the tabernacle. And this is the imagery that John is playing on. He's trying to draw on a parallel of the revealed means of glory of the past and now the coming current means of God's glory in the present, in that time when John wrote the gospel, and in the future. When we read on after verse 14 in John's gospel, we read, And John bore witness of him, John the Baptist that is, and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So here we see that John is showing that comparison and contrast of Moses to Jesus. It was Moses by whom God chose to reveal himself face to face. Not everyone else got to see God face to face. They got to see from afar off 
the fire, the pillar, the cloud, the smoke. And it was Moses that would receive the oracles of God, and then he would turn around and proclaim those oracles of God to the congregation. But now, starting in the New Testament, starting with that Logos, that Word of God that now has become flesh, God has come to reveal Himself in a new way, in a much more personal way, through that individual that we know as Jesus Christ. Verse 18 of John's Gospel, chapter 1 says, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten of the Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared Him. For now, God's going to be revealed through this individual. This Logos will come, become flesh. This risen Savior that we know as Jesus Christ. And what's so significant of that is because if you were living in the first century, you're talking about a time period where there had been many, many years, right? Since a prophet of the Lord had been around and had a word from the Lord. Yes, I'm sure there were many false prophets or people who claimed to hear and, and had a, a word from the Lord. But there was this intertestament period that they say, right? This years of silence. And now Jesus is coming on the scene and now God has chosen to reveal Himself through this individual, the ultimate revealer of the Father. No longer do you have to, like they did in the Old Testament. Have we had any word from the Lord? What has God been saying? And they would say this to all the different prophets. They would go to them. They would specifically know that there were prophets set up by God that God would communicate through. But now we have a superior prophet of all mankind, the Savior, that Jesus is revealing the Father in Himself through this individual, through himself. Hebrews, the first chapter, we've read this many times before too. It says in verse 1 through 4, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed an heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds who being in the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as He has by inheritance, inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And why I'm bringing this out is because we have a part and this revealing of God through Christ. We are a part of the body of Christ, this spiritual organism as we call it sometimes. God is revealing Himself, of course, through Jesus, through the Savior, but He's called us, His church, His sons and daughters, to be the ones, to be the bearers of His name. The Bible tells us all the time, or in many different places, how we have a role in this. We know that Jesus, when He was on this earth, He says that we are the salt and light of the world. The salt and the light of the world. Let's go to Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses 13 through 16. We know that this is the famous Sermon on the Mount. And, and Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? By 
that was set up lamp and put under a basket. Let your light so shine before men that they may and a common interpretation of this ancient world and still in many parts uh, many different industries. It preserves food. It preserves living flesh, like fish and things like that, and other meats. It preserves it from decaying. And so we are to act like salt in, 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 in terms of helping prevent or slow down the decay of this world. And we are also called the light. We are represent. We are the light of the world, and we know that Christ is the light of the world. And so, through Christ lighting us up, we're supposed to reflect that greater light. Just like the sun reflects off the moon and we see the moon. The moon has no light of itself, but through the sun's reflection. We also know that throughout scriptures, uh, the scripture, that we've been given a commission to go to all the world and preach the gospel and baptize everyone in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Other places we're called co-workers of God, co-workers with God. We're called ambassadors of God. We have to understand the great blessing that we've been given that God has chosen to work through His church. But with that blessing, there's a responsibility. And one of the most important ways that we represent God and Christ on this earth is none other but through our words. Our words are powerful. Now, I'll just be honest with you. What has really inspired me just the last few weeks is, number one, election season has just come upon us. And I don't know about you, but I've gotten more mail than I can, you know, I, I can even count. And they all say something a little bit different. They all say, you know, something negative about the other person that they're running against. But also, other mediums like social media, and let's just face it, that's just a part of our world. A big chunk of interpersonal relationships today is involved with social media. It's just a part of our world. And a week ago, as was already mentioned in the first message, there was a big ruling that took place in our nation. Roe versus Wade, Wade was reversed, repealed. And of course, most of us are very happy with that verdict. But we know that it's caused a firestorm, and it's caused an opportunity, coupled with the election that we just had, where people sometimes use their words, Christians, maybe even ourselves, in ways that are not profitable and don't represent the salt of the world that we're supposed to be and the light of the world that we're supposed to be. So with that, I'd like to go to a passage that we actually just kind of looked at this last spring in our study with James, in our Bible study, let's go to James, the third chapter, because James has something to say about the tongue and the power of words, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. James, the third chapter, verses 1 through 12, is a popular string of passages, and as I mentioned, we just talked about James uh, this past spring in our Bible study, but in this particular section of James, more specifically, James talks about 
the tongue and the potential destruction that our speech or our words are capable of. Now, from a context, when James starts this out, we're going to read it here in a minute, it seems that he's primarily talking to those who desire to be teachers. He's warning those who desire to be teachers about the tongue, about speech. But the ideas that James brings out, of course, pertains to all of us as Christians, not just people who are so-called official teachers. James touches on this topic throughout the scriptures, or throughout his letter as well. Before James, the third chapter, we know that in verse 19 and 20 of verse 1, he says, let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak. Swift to hear and slow to speak. I used to, you know, people ask me, what's your favorite scripture? And I used to point to this one. And, And I still do. And strangely, it's because it's one of the most difficult principles to live by for me. I'm a talker. I have a mouth that likes to say things and voices opinion sometimes. And so many times, if I would just follow after this, you know, precept that, that James wrote, I would have saved myself a lot of trouble. Also, verse 26 of chapter 1 says, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle, that is, control his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. But starting in chapter 3, James develops this idea of the tongue a little bit more fully. Let's just read verses 1 through 12. He says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. We know that Jesus talked about this as well, about teachers receiving a stricter judgment, specifically when he talked about and and referring to the scribes and some of those religious leaders. For we all stumble in many things, and if anyone does not stumble uh, in word, he is a perfect man. You don't hear that very often in Scripture, do you? Able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths, and they may obey us, that they may obey us. And we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a force a force, see how great a force a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men. Who have been made in the similitude of God, out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. And so today I have two main points. My first one is, real simple, beware and cautious of the tongue's ability to destroy. And as I already mentioned right here, he seems to be, in the context, specifically what's, what's, 
what's uh, motivating him to talk about this topic is those who might want to be teachers. And we don't know what was going on in this congregation or, or the congregations because he wrote to the scattered brethren. We don't know what was happening. What we do know is that there were a lot of people that wanted to rise up and be teachers, that wanted to you know, have people follow after them. But the fact is, it's not, and this is how Scripture always is, even when it's talking to someone specific or maybe someone in a certain role, there's still application that needs to be brought forth to everybody. And we know that this is, as I mentioned, you know, that this applies to all of us. Even if we're not teachers per se, let's just think about that. All of us have probably been in situations in life where we're in a teaching role. You have conversations with friends, with family, uh, co-workers, our children, instructing them. Then, yeah, you might not be officially a teacher, but you might be telling them things, instructing them on things. Maybe it's about God. Maybe someone asks you a question about the Bible. And that's what I'm specifically saying. All of us, all of us have situations where even if we're not teachers, we can be in situations where we might be teaching. And so James mentions this idea that everyone stumbles. Now, this word stumble means to stagger, to fall, or make a false step. It's what the Greek word means. And it's a common figure of speech used to refer to, of course, sinning. And we all sin. We all stumble. And most of us, if you're like me, you're probably pretty familiar with you know, those certain temptations and those sins that tend to trip us up. And so in this life, there is no shortage of things that we might stumble against, especially living in this world. You know, the world is continually more and more kind of opposed to a biblical viewpoint. And, and the more, I mean, human nature is enough, right? But coupled with a world that's becoming more and more you know, away from God and what nothing to do with God makes it even worse and makes it even more difficult. And so we know that there's not a shortage of things that, you know, whether it be our thoughts, our actions, and of course our speech that makes us stumble. But James says if a person is able to overcome stumbling in their speech, that he is a perfect man. Now, as I mentioned, that isn't really, that's not something that's said a lot in Scripture. And essentially, James is drawing on this idea that if a person can bridle, control their tongue, then they can control everything else because the tongue is the most difficult part of the body to control. Now, everyone's different. Everyone has different experiences. But I find this, in the application of my life, to be extremely true. As I go out my life, and I, I mean, there's times where I just, you know, have opened up my mouth, and I'm talking about to just, you know, people uh, in my family or friends, and just say things that just have gotten me into trouble. And I don't feel good about it a little bit later on, because the tongue truly is a difficult thing to tame. And so James goes on to describe with two illustrations just about how powerful the tongue is. The first one is this illustration of bits used in horses' mouths. Now, I don't have a lot of experience with horses. I've never ridden a horse before. Uh, my two kids went to a birthday party just last week where they had pony rides. So, I mean, I, I, never, I didn't join in, but I, I, of course, 
but I did observe, you know, the different, you know, the saddle and how it all, you know, uh, you know how it's put together. And so I Googled as well, you know, when I look at anything in Scripture, I mean, this is an illustration that we don't have to go back in time and be like, what did they do back then? Because bits in horses' mouths are still things that are used. And horses are large animals, and a bit is just, again, I'm not an expert, so I could be wrong, but it goes through their mouth, and it's what you use to control the direction. You can control, you know, I don't know about the speed, but, you know, the direction as well as when they stop and go. And so... This bit, though, these horses, horses are a big animal. It's one of the larger animals that we have. Of course, they're not as big as elephants and other things like that, but in comparatively speaking to other animals, it's a pretty large animal. But such a small little bit controls such a large animal. The second illustration that James uses is the rudder of a ship. Now, I did go online uh, this last, yesterday actually, and has anybody ever been on a cruise ship before? I've been on a cruise ship. And they're they're gigantic. It's it's un, it's unreal how big these ships are. I mean, four or five thousand people can fit on these ships, and they they're literally like a city on the water. And 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 I looked at some diagrams of them, and lo and behold, this little I mean, it's not small, but in comparison to the whole ship, these little rudders, either on the front or the back, usually the front, is what controls the direction. And that's the analogy that James is trying to get at, is that although the tongue is very small, it has a huge impact. It has the capability to setting fire, essentially, to the world. And he tells us in verse 5 and 6, we'll read that, Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a force a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Let's just think about the negative impact that the tongue can have. I've already mentioned, you know, my experiences with the tongue. You know, and a lot of times the tongue speaks before the mind can think, and so you end up saying something that's really not true or... Maybe you're you know, kind of debating something and you're trying to win the argument so you misstep in your speech. Or maybe it's out of anger. You're just wanting to get back at somebody and you say something that is not very kind or you don't really care or you don't like. And this can be, you know, I'm sure that you can think of experiences in your own life, but the tongue not only has the capability of doing damage to whoever you're talking to, but even bystanders that are not even in the conversation. I mean, think about it. You're talking to one person, and you're talking negative, right? And maybe you've seen people do this, and someone is watching what you're saying and how you're saying it. And they lose maybe a little respect for you. Or they realize that maybe you're not the person who you claim to be. And they lose a little trust in you. And this could be at your job. This can be just in relationships. I remember growing up as a kid, and I'd have friends that, you know, would be so nice, and I would be, you know, really nice to me, but then I would see how they would talk to maybe their girlfriend, and I couldn't believe it. I mean, it's a total different picture of who that individual was in my mind before I saw that. And we know that this can happen, and it does happen, of course. 
Words have the power to do a lot of damage. To start wars, words can result in the loss of employment, loss of friendships, estrangement from family, divorces, rumors, ignite riots, and even result in bodily harm, injury, and death. Murders. Years ago, when I was reading, uh, I did a series on James. Many of you probably remember that about five or six years ago. I think five years ago, 2017, and I was reading a lot of different things, and I came across an individual by the name of Bob Deffenbaugh. He's a pastor, and he wrote kind of like a, a series of study notes on the book of James, and he entitled each little section. And he entitled this uh, section that we're reading right here, Taming the Tongue. And he mentioned in this, uh, you know, uh, teaching on James, the third chapter, verses 1 through 12, that one time he had taken a trip uh, to Montana, and he had witnessed the aftermath of this great forest fire that resulted in, you know, lots of square miles. I don't know the exact number, but a lot of destruction by fire, of course. The fire, and I don't know how they determined this, was determined to be the result of a grasshopper that had jumped onto a muffler, a hot muffler, caught flame, jumped off the muffler, and resulted in this huge forest fire. And it just shows you that this was just the smallest little flick of a fire that resulted in a massive amount of destruction. And I don't know a lot about forest fires. There was a fire across the street from my neighborhood yesterday. It's very hot right now. It's very dry, so who knows. But I know that the the hopes have been to California a lot in the last few years, and they firsthand witnessed some of the, the damage that's been done by these fires. And, of course, in that part of the country, they tend to be a little bit more common. But there's all kinds of things that can just be so little small that can make a huge impact. And, unfortunately, in our world, when it comes to words, we don't even need to be present to ignite a firestorm. And I'm not talking about a little fire. I'm talking about a firestorm through social media because you say something. Uh, or all of a sudden there's a riot because someone comes out and posts such and such. And we've seen that in our world, specifically as we live in this digital age. You know, when it comes to throwing a punch, slapping someone, shooting an arrow, shooting a gun, even a missile, you have to be at least in some, you know, reasonable proximity, right, to your target to be able to hit it. Not with the tongue. Not with the era that we live in. A person can just say something online, and in no time, in no time, it's around the world. It travels, it goes viral. The tongue's arrows can strike at any vantage point and reach its targets. Rumors, slander, negative things towards people, of course. Psalm the 30. Psalm 73, verse 9 says, They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks the earth. And this just shows you that when it comes to the tongue, it has a far, far reach. My second main point, out of our hearts, a person speaks. Therefore, make sure our hearts are purified. Jesus said, And Matthew 12, let's go ahead and just go there real quick. Matthew 12, verse 33 through 37. We know that what James is telling us, although the tongue is the steering wheel for the body, 
Jesus says the heart is at the core of it all. Verse 33 of Matthew 12, we see Jesus say, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brother Viper, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And we see that Jesus, and this is in relation to what James said, because James talks about out of the mouth proceed blessing and cursing. And he asks the question, does a spring forth, does a, does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? And so what Jesus is saying and what James is saying is the same thing. That which is whatever it is, whether it be a fruit, a fig seed, you know, whether it be good treasure that's in the heart, whatever is being spoken, it's coming from within. There's no hiding. Your speech is what portrays you. You can portray yourself however you want, but your speech is the window to the heart, to what's really and truly there. It's interesting, and just read James real quick. It says, verse 7 in chapter 3, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile, and creature of the sea is tamed, and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil a deadly poison. We know that Genesis, the very beginning, verses 26 and through 28 in the first chapter, we know that the mankind was given this duty. One of the first duties of mankind was, of course, to tame the animal kingdom. Verse 26 of Genesis, the first chapter, says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves. And we know that that is what happens. Mankind has been able to tame some of the most ferocious beasts in the animal kingdom. Lions, tigers, bears, alligators, you name it. Mankind has been able to tame these ferocious beasts. I mean, you think about maybe going to a circus. I haven't been to a lot of circuses, but I've been to zoos and seen animals taught how to do tricks monkeys to paint or draw, lions and tigers to jump through hoops, snakes to lie down, elephants to roll and command. Of course, we all, many of us have dogs of ourselves and other animals, and we can teach them tricks. Man has done what Genesis tells us that was man's responsibility. But when it comes to the tongue, James says, but the tongue no man can tame. Now, James is probably speaking hyperbole there because 
He's not telling us, do this, but it's impossible for you to do it. He's emphasizing the difficulty, the seriousness when it comes to the reality of the difficulty in trying to tame the tongue. And the way that he talks about the tongue, almost as if the tongue is its own species. Like it's almost separate from us. And this isn't trying to you know, not take responsibility for what we say, but he almost talks about this tongue like the tongue have a, has a mind of its own. He says that it's called an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Now, unruly, other translations use restless evil. The word unruly or restless, it means unstable, turbulent, and constant, that is, frequently changing or variable or irregular. And I was thinking to myself, we've all heard the phrase, yeah, I better bite my tongue, right? Now, it's just a phrase that we use. But if we really think about that, why do we need to bite our tongue? We usually do that and say that because we're saying, hey, I'm in a situation and my tongue's going to get me in trouble. I'm gonna, I don't like what this person's saying and I really want to let them know how I feel. So I have to physically, manually muzzle my tongue as if it's a different entity from me, myself, or for, for, from us. And we almost speak as if it has a mind of its own, knowing that just how easy it is for our tongue to just all of a sudden open it, open, you open your mouth and let it go. James also calls the tongue full of deadly poison. And we know that Psalm 140, verse 3 says, They make their tongue as sharp as serpents. The poison of vipers is on their lips. There's other scriptures throughout the Bible that talks about this idea of the destruction the tongue can have and specifically how it can be venomous. You know, growing up, and we've all heard this other phrase too, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And I grew up, you know, I, I remember, you know, some kids would say things rude to me, and I had, you know, just, just like every other kid, there would be things that they would say, and I, I would say things to other kids, right? And you'd hear that phrase from a teacher or, or your parents. Unfortunately, that's not true. Words do hurt people. Words do cause issues. Words can actually cause, and I'm not talking about bodily injury, of course, but they can leave a wound. A few years ago, and I just, I really like this little, it's a fictional story, but I was, I don't know where I was, but I, I, it was a little, it wasn't a true story, it was kind of one of those has a point, find an illustration. And it was called The Boy and the Fence. Has anyone ever heard this before? The Boy and the Fence. I'll just explain it to you. It's a story that goes like this. There once was a little boy who had a bad temper. His father gave him a bag of nails and told him that every time he lost his temper, he must hammer a nail back into the fence. The first day, the boy had driven 37 nails into that fence. Over the next few weeks, as he learned to control his anger, the number of nails hammered daily gradually dwindled down. He discovered it was easier to hold his temper than to drive those nails into the fence. Finally, the day came when the boy didn't lose his temper at all. He told his father about it, and the father suggested that the boy now pull out one nail for each day that he was able to hold his temper. The days passed. And the young boy was finally able to tell his father 
that all the nails were gone. The father took his son by the hand and led him to the fence. And he said, You have done well, my son, but look at the holes in the fence. The fence will never be the same. When you say things in anger, they leave a scar just like this one. You could put a knife in a man and draw it out. It won't matter how many times you say, I'm sorry, the wound is still there. Now, of course, this is a fictional story. And the point of it is, is that when we say things, it's like, you know, the old adage, you can't put the, the toothpaste back in the tooth, in, into the tooth, the, the tube. Because once we say it, there can be reconciliation. But there can still be a wound that you might have wounded somebody with those words. And there's consequences. And that's another thing when it comes to this dynamic, this world we live in. You know, Jesus, one of the things he says that is that, Behold, I make all things new. And talking about that reconciliation, that fallen humanity to have, all those internal issues that we have. Yes, there's reconciliation through Christ. But in this life that we live in, we can, with our words, damage relationships, cause problems, and God's not just going to say, okay, I for, since I forgive you for it, you're not going to have to suffer any of the consequences. It's just something to think about. James also brings out the idea of the contradictory nature of the tongue. He says, with our tongue, we both bless God and curse man who are made in the very image, the similitude of God. Which is true, right? Okay? Ever been in a situation where you're studying the Bible, you're singing praises to God? Maybe it was a church day. Maybe it was a day just like today, and you're singing and you're worshiping God, and I've been here before. And then you get home and something happens, and you get angry and you say something that's obviously the opposite of what God's all about. Opposite of that nature that you're trying so hard to let God create in you. We can use our words to build up, to cut down, to testify to the truth, or to slander. But in the end, it all comes back to that one thing, that second main point. It's in the heart. If we want to fix our speech, if we want to control our tongue, we have to purify our heart. i got one more little scripture I want to go to. Matthew, the 15th chapter. A famous debate that Jesus had with the religious leaders. and He was asked, why do you guys not follow the traditions of the elders and defile yourselves by not eating with washed hands? And Jesus says in Matthew, the 15th chapter, verse 11, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man, of course. It's not meant for this message. People have misinterpreted this to apply to clean and unclean meats, and that's not, of course, what Jesus is referring to. Verse 17, do you not yet understand that whatever the mouth, whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, these behaviors 
is what results. We must use our speech with caution. We must realize that our words matter and there is destructive power that resides in an untamed tongue. Despite its size, its impact can be big, as we've read from James. But at its core, our tongue is a mirror of our hearts. Our hearts, are they set on elevating God's glory or our own? At the end of the day, we must realize that our tongues can set the paths, not just for ourselves, but for others as well. And one of the great commissions we have been given on this earth is to faithfully represent Christ and His glory. And our tongue is one of the ways that we do this. It's a big way that we do it. Brethren, there's no argument that there's a lot of things in this world, a lot of different opinions, a lot of different, um, shall I say, arguments going on. And it's been going on for a long time, but it seems that it's going on worse than I've ever experienced it. And so as those arguments go on, as these things rage, be mindful of our tongue, how we say things, and what manner we say things. Are we just trying to maybe tell people off? You have to think about that. I've been guilty of this myself. Are we just trying to prove our point? Are we truly trying to represent Christ in us? And I'm not saying that we lay down and we don't stand for truth. By no means. But be mindful of how we say the things we say. How we engage in those discussions. This world needs us. Of course, it needs us because that's what God says. It doesn't need us because we have any power, but God expects us to play a role in this world, in proclaiming that gospel message. And so as we go out and as things, I can only imagine it getting worse, and the more inner relationships you have as far as at work and, uh, you know, you, you're, you know, different people that you meet, um, you know, wherever it may be, neighbors, these things are going to abound. Be mindful how you talk. Be mindful how you speak to people. And always ask yourself, am I checking my heart? Am I checking my heart so we can make sure that we have a tame tongue and faithfully represent Christ as witnesses on this earth.